0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Paul Wilmot. And if you are remotely interested in anything having to do with quantitative finance, then this is the podcast for you. Uh, He is not only a colleague and peer of such esteemed quant's as Emmanuel Derman and uh, Nassim Taleb, who is really more of a pure mathematician. Uh, But he is the purveyor of the world's largest website on quantitative finance. He has written numerous books on, uh, textbooks on quantitative finance. Uh, He has helped create the certificate uh, for finance uh, quant work, and he has just been... Uh, absolutely, on the forefront of identifying what's wrong with financial models, markets, derivatives, risk taking. There, are, there are few people who understood why uh, the financial crisis of 0809 was coming. Uh, more specifically, and earlier than he did, eight years in advance, he was warning, "Hey, these models are really problematic, and and they're going to result in in big problems." Um, they're going to result in real issues, and he turned out to be not only right generally, but what he was criticizing specifically turned out to be uh, a large part of, of why markets and credit went, went through its collapse. Uh, so with no further ado, here is my conversation with Paul Wilmot. I have an extra special guest. His name is Paul Wilmot. How do I describe him? He is an expert in quantitative finance, a researcher, an author, uh, a consultant, a professor. He has written over 100 research papers on mathematics and finance, several best-selling and some would say groundbreaking textbooks. He runs what is the biggest quantitative analysis website uh, in the world. Uh, no lesser a critic than Nassim Taleb described him as... The smartest quant in the world, the only one who truly understands what's going on, who uses his head and has a sense of ethics, Paul Wilmot. Welcome to Bloomberg.
1: Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. I have to correct you. Okay. Already I have to correct you. I'm not and never have been a professor. I'm a mere doctor, I'm afraid.
0: Weren't you a lecturer?
1: I, I've been, I've had all sorts of research positions in mm-hmm. universities, but never reached that exalted...
0: Uh, I'll tell you why I drew that conclusion. There is a YouTube video of you describing some of the chapters of some of your textbooks, and you just have a natural professorial air. I, I have this thing, don't I? And, and I drew the assumption that I perhaps should not have drawn. So let's talk a little bit about um, your research, your work, your writing... Uh, I have to start out with a quote of yours from one of your papers. The paper published in 2000 was The Use, Misuse, and Abuse of Mathematics and Finance. That title alone is, is a good place to start. But here's the quote that was so prescient. It's clear that a major rethink is desperately required if the world is to avoid a mathematician-led market meltdown. That is pretty much dead on. And seven years later, we had the quant crash, and a year after that, we had the full-blown great financial crisis. What were you looking at that gave you such a clear understanding of of the coming storm?
1: Well, I also, a few years after that, I wrote that, I did um, specify that I thought it was going to be credit derivatives that might be the problem.
0: So even more specific. Yes,
1: and that, that's because of my background. I, I haven't taken the, the classical quant route. And I come with a, a lot of uh, skepticism mm-hmm. and I'm not a great fan of following the herd. So whenever I look at mathematical models, I can pretty much tell you whether they're, they're based on any reality or maybe whether there's any dangers involved um, with the, you know, the hedging or the valuation. And everywhere I looked, I just saw there were, there were dangers. It was not so, the, the models for equities are not too bad in quantitative finance. The models for interest rates are pretty bad bad, except mm-hmm. interest rates don't really do much, uh, certainly not at the moment anyway. Um, but credit, the models are not only, uh, the models really, really uh, bad in terms of not matching reality and how they're used, but also credit markets are absolutely enormous.
0: Tremendous. In fact, the, also from the same paper, the underlying assumptions of financial models such as the importance of normal distribution, the elimination of risk, measurable correlations, etc., are all incorrect? Yes. And and when I read that, I, I was reminded of the famous George Box quote, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And I know that's sort of a bastardization of, of what he really was intended, but the natural next question is, are all models wrong, and how can you tell the ones that are useful from the ones that are dangerous.
1: Well, models in finance are going to be wrong. and it's By course, definition, you can't, you can't perfectly understand no, what's not happening. not at all. Um, and as for the word useful, I think you have to ask what is meant by useful. And there, there are various ways of looking at this. Uh, useful, are they useful in helping you uh, control risk? Are they helpful in uh, allowing you to do more business? There are all sorts of different angles. And some of these are... Sort of Conflict with what the man in the street might want. For example, mm-hmm. a model might be useful because it's great for marketing and it, you know, it fools the regulators and oh, it's right. it's not very good, but hey, it's it's useful if you're going to try and start a really big hedge fund. Um, so it depends what you mean. I, you,
0: I don't think that's what Professor Box was referring exactly, to. Exactly. However, exactly. It, they certainly have can serve useful purposes, albeit perhaps not. Accurately predicting what the universe may look like.
1: Exactly. So you'd hope that when we talk about having a model that's useful, you'd, you'd like to think in terms of, oh, it, it allows us to um, manage our risk or hedge our risk, something like that, or or produce uh, important new products that are helpful in you know, hedging your business or whatever. But uh, I'm a bit too cynical to, to think of
0: So you said you didn't take the the usual route into quantitative finance. What was your route? How did you find your way into quant finance? And how does that differ from the typical quant on Wall Street? Well, you have to go back to my my childhood, really. Uh,
1: I've always, from a very young age, run my own businesses of various sizes. And even when I was a mathematician at university doing my doctorate or doing postdoctoral work, I was always uh, interacting with the real world, trying to do consultancy, etc. And it meant that I I saw a lot of different problems from fields outside of finance. Uh, in fact, when I started in finance in, in the, uh, the late 80s, b- before that, I, I didn't even know there was any mathematics in finance. But I'd, I'd work for uh, aeronautical companies, for steel companies, for uh, all sorts of different businesses where you try and take a physical problem and, and turn it into, into something mathematical mm-hmm. and then a, a colleague introduced me to these things called options this was in the uh, it was actually um, just before the 87 crash and just looking into the literature I found hey there's, there's real mathematics uh, involved in, 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 in um, derivatives and so I started just to apply the same principles of mathematical modeling to derivatives as I had to all these other real-world physical processes that I'd, I'd worked on. Actually, the, when I first saw the famous Black-Scholes uh, equation, um, I thought, this is, this is great. This is just like second-year undergraduate mathematics <laughs> um, th- these days. Apparently, you're supposed to have a PhD, but actually, that's that's a that's a load of nonsense. Um, most quant finance is just second-year undergraduate maths.
0: Some of the book is really quite fascinating. You start out with a history of investment theory, and I thought skipping from the South Sea Bubble to Adam Smith to the efficient market hypothesis, what is the connective tissue between all three of those? major events in in the history of finance well what you i think what
1: you start to see is um going from um just people's personal experience through to trying to lay down some principles and then trying to quantify those principles Mm -hmm. so we're up to the period now the modern era when pretty much everything in finance is all quantified everything's all in terms of um, expected returns and volatility and quantities like that
0: it could be reduced to mathematical models. Everything's become mathematics, yes. Right. So so then I always thought of the random walk theory as a sort of squishy psychological claim that, hey, you know, uh, some maybe some people can beat the market, but you're probably not one of them and you probably can't pick them. And then once we bring in taxes and costs and everything else, you're better off just indexing. But you relate the whole concept of random walk to probability theory? What ties these two together?
1: Well, if you go back to the, the different types of analysis that people do in, in finance, you've got fundamental analysis, which is about trying to figure out by looking at the company report, company's reports and the, the directors, et cetera, the, the products, how much is this company really worth? Uh, now, that's very difficult to do. That's, that's a lot of analysis is required. Um, I mean, can you read balance sheets? I can't read balance no. sheets. No, not without falling asleep halfway exactly, through. It. Exactly, exactly. So, but the real problem is, is that you're not trying to predict what the, the, the uh, market value of a company should be because you're trying to predict what other people, the people who are buying selling shares, think. King's so
0: famous beauty King's, contest.
1: Exactly. So you move on to fundamental uh, sorry, move on from fundamental to technical analysis, which is the exact opposite, which is really easy. You, you, you draw a chart, do some trend lines and some patterns. problem is that sort of thing... Statistically speaking, doesn't work. I mean, the, the, the scientific evidence suggests that the vast majority of that doesn't work. So the, the great breakthrough of the 50s, 60s, 70s was to say, let's throw all that away. Let's just say you know, we can't predict things. We've got the, the concept of the efficient market hypothesis um, as, a, as a background for this. But let's just say it's like tossing a coin. Now, is it a tossing a biased coin? What's the chance of heads? What's the t- chance of tails? So you put numbers to these probabilities, and the, the sort of the, from that we get lots of theories about um, derivatives valuation, and once you've got derivatives, you, you, you can value derivatives, you can create new instruments, and the new instruments might require new math, new mathematics. So you have this snowballing effect where you've got the mathematics increasing and the number and type of products simultaneously increasing.
0: So there's a quote in the book I really like, and and I'm going to mangle this a little bit. No investment strategy based on mainstream finance theory can protect, protect investors from market-wide crashes. First, is anyone really suggesting, hey, our strategy is going to protect you? Is that, I, I guess that's naive of me to, to, to ask, but do people really believe, oh, here's the magic 1987-like portfolio insurance that will protect us?
1: I'm sure there are some things you can do. Um, there, there are all sorts of nuances here. I, I remember Nassim, my dear pal, Nassim T- Taleb, telling me about his um, the way he pitches this this idea, um, and that is to say, it's insurance. Mm-hmm. It's not a portfolio. It's not an investment. It's insurance. You're going to lose money. In fact, you hope you'll lose money because if you make money on this insurance, it's because your house is burnt down, right. which you don't want to have, have happen. So that's quite a, you know that's, that's a, a psychological way of looking at, at this. Getting the putting in place the the, um, the protection as a, as a as a cost rather than as an investment um, there are some things you can do of course the famous portfolio um, dynamic uh, portfolio insurance of the of the 80s was a, was a classic example of, um, of a feedback effect a positive f- feedback effect that the the very action of trying to protect your portfolio is what caused the crash, made it worse, which is a beautiful concept.
0: What what I don't understand is who thought, oh, if the market is crashing, I'll go out and buy some puts and that'll protect me. Summing it up that way, how did anybody think that that model was valid? And granted, there's a little hindsight bias here, but still, it sounds so obvious after the fact that that would not work.
1: Right. I don't know. I don't know. Um, the, I think. The, I think in all of this, that a key thing you've always got to remember is the, the psychology of the markets, and that the, the, whatever the mathematical models say, that somehow human beings in this particular field do try to do manage to mess up the uh, the models.
0: So here's a, another mangled quote: Bankers offering complex financial products don't own, always understand the risks, and that when a bank goes bust. Stock markets collapse, house prices tumble. It's your bank account, your shares, and your home equity that suffers.
1: Right. Well, it's certainly true in my experience that bankers and especially regulators, I have to say, do not know as much as they ought to. Um, if they were um, doctors and they didn't know, you know, um, which some was,
0: leeches do a little bleeding. Exactly. We're all good.
1: Or you know, which side is the heart on? You know, <laughs> that sort of thing. Then there'd be lawsuits flying. But bankers, in my experience, there's a lot of herd mentality uh-huh. you know, within bankers, and that works for them. That's how that's how they, they make money is from from pretending there are no risks, and you know, uh, although they may deep down they may realise there are risks, and regulators. I haven't met that many regulators. I don't seem to bump into them very often, maybe because of the things I've said about them in the past. But <laughs> my experience is often they're very good at book learning. You know, they've they've got they've read the maths books, they know the models, but they're sorely lacking in street smarts, in my experience. So they don't really understand how the world works.
0: So you have in the past suggested a solution to the problem of both bankers that don't understand risk and regulators that don't know how to regulate it, is a Tobin tax on each transaction, a point zero zero eight percent tax on any buy, sell, any trade whatsoever. And how would that work and how would that protect markets? You're very
1: good with your numbers. Um, the, the idea of the Tobin tax is to stop a very high-frequency trading because... Uh, you then lose with the high frequency. The problem with one of the problems with high frequency trading is that you lose the connection between the value mm-hmm. of a share, company, and the price. It just becomes about, you know, the, the, these these uh, some time series of numbers, and it, it could be anything. It doesn't right. matter. It's it, but there's a company here, and there are people whose, whose you know, jobs are on the line.
0: Let's talk a little bit about uh, the time you spent at Kayasa Capital? Kayasa. Kayasa Capital. Two people separated by a common language. So you were a founding partner of the volatility arbitrage hedge funds, which was running uh, about $200 million. Is it's just under part?
1: $200 million, yes. And
0: yes. So, so tell us a little bit about volatility arbitrage, which is sort of ironic in these days of almost no volatility.
1: It's interesting that, that it's very difficult, I find, I, I found, to predict the direction a stock is going to go, up or down. Mm-hmm. But it seems to be easier, and there are statistical reasons for this, actually. But it seems to be easier to um, to forecast volatility, how much noise there in a, there is in a stock.
0: Huh. So you predict- sort of counterintuitive though that you you it's harder to find the signal and it's easier to yeah.
1: find the noise. Yes, I I can see that, but. At the same time, you can see what the market is sort of thinking volatility is because options, the valuation of options, hinges upon estimation of volatility. So you can say, oh, here's a call option. Uh, What volatility are they plugging into the famous Black Scholes formula to give that that price that you see in the market? And so you can can back out a thing called implied volatility, which is sort of a bit like what the market thinks. So you you look around for... um, when is the implied volatility different or sufficiently different from your forecast volatility and if they're different and if you just happen to be right then you can make some money mm-hmm. so that sounds is, complex it's it's a purest sort of um volatility arbitrage mm-hmm. I'm, I'm betting my forecasts against the market's forecasts, essentially, is what it amounts to. So a not-so-efficient market. Not-so-efficient. Not-so-efficient. I don't think anyone believes in efficient markets who's listening to this program, do they?
0: Um, um. <laughs> I think there are a decent number. It's it's a really interesting point because I think there are a number of people who say, um, uh, look, Cliff Asness, who runs AQR, Gene Fama was his PhD yeah, yeah. dissertation advisor. Yeah. And to Farmer's credit, he said, "Hey, if you want to go out and prove factors work, I, I, I'll. I'm happy with that." Yeah, yeah. So we know the market is kinda, sorta, mostly, eventually efficient. Is that a, is that a fair way to describe it? Not
1: necessarily. It, it depends whether there's any mechanism for for removing any efficiency. People just say, "Oh, that you know." The, people say things like, "The market's always right." And,
0: and uh, well, we know that's certainly not. How, no. How exactly. Could, how could the market be? 23% lower the day after the crash. Was it right the day before? Was it right the day after? Is it wrong both times? It's kind of hard to say the market is always right.
1: Right, well, one, an example I, I sometimes give my students is about, uses um, the idea of car insurance. Mm-hmm. For example, suppose you've got a $20,000 car and your annual car insurance is, let's use simple numbers, $1,000. A quant would say, oh, it's a $20,000 car, it's a $1,000 car insurance. Oh, that means there must be a 5% chance of crashing. Mm-hmm. And because they're missing out from that 5%, the fact that the insurance company needs to make a profit and right. they're doing things on average, all sorts of things. So so the way your typical quant or, or um, Chicago finance professor looks at things uh-huh. is, in a, is in a very pure way that sort of misses all the fun, what mm-hmm. I think. Of, and uh, as I've said before, I, I, I've been running businesses since I was a, a child virtually. And the business side of things is what makes things interesting. And – so when we approach this, this sort of the, going back to volatility arbitrage, you'd be amazed at if you looked at the literature. The uh, there must be tens of thousands of papers which talk about um, how to oh, how to back out from from uh, market prices what the implied volatility is and how as- they assume that the implied volatility is right, that the market knows. The market has a crystal ball. It knows what volatility is going to be. Mm-hmm. must be tens of thousands. How many papers are there which say, well, you know what, what if the market is wrong and the volatility, the real volatility is different from implied volatility? How can you make money? There and that's be, the
0: underlying strategy that's what of Casa Capital.
1: Uh, Casa Capital. That must, there must be... Half a dozen papers. And surely that's the most important thing. Well, you've got an option. the The question is, what am I going to do with this? I could hedge with it or I could make money from it. Mm-hmm. And there's just half a dozen papers on how to make money.
0: so so how did the hedge
1: fund do? The hedge fund was did did uh, wonderfully for its its uh, lifespan of three years, which mm-hmm. I believe is is the average lifespan of a hedge fund
0: and And so at the end of the three years, you basically tapped out and said, I'm going to go back to writing. I have well, a little... I,
1: I, I learned a lot from that, that hedge fund. A, a lot of things about, um, not just about hedge funds, but also about, about myself. Um, oh, really? I found that very interesting. Th- the hedge fund was based in New York. Um, and where uh, were you located I at the time? I was located in London. So there was a, this five-hour time difference. And, and just as things were getting uh, interesting in New York was when I was you know sitting down to dinner or wanting to go to bed or something like that. So that was kind of frustrating.
0: Let's talk about the Wilmot business model. So you run the website. Yeah. You have a, a print magazine. Yeah. You have a Paul and Dominic quant recruitment. The book, which we all know is Books of Giant Moneymakers. What is your business model as Quant expert.
1: Well, the, the Paul and Dominic's doesn't exist anymore. That that's gone. Down a few, okay. Yes, but the and also there was the um, we talk about the world's largest quant website. It, it's also apparently the world's most expensive magazine. Mm-hmm. I've been told. I don't know whether that's true or well, not. Um, what's the
0: magazine cost? It,
1: it's about $600 for, for six issues? I don't think that's terribly expensive. I looked it up. It's not actually. This and was, if
0: you look at some of the like the medical journals and stuff, these are thousands of do- In fact, there was a big article not too long ago about what used to be academic research now sells for thousands of dollars. And there's two companies yeah. that have sucked up all these... Yeah. formally free publication
1: and that, that, that was a quote from Esquire magazine so I just like to, to just repeat that <laughs> it's not very useful in marketing though. there was until recently well there still is the certificate in quantitative finance yep that that is, is the world's largest high-level quant education mm-hmm. fund with, with a company called seven City this Cqf was was founded with a company called seven city learning uh, in 2003 was it mm-hmm. but it was sold up to Fitch about three or four years oh, ago really? so so but what is the business model the, the Business model. Well, my whole business model, all my life, has been do something which is fun, and then, and then I accidentally, or I I always have this urge to turn things into into businesses. It's not a it's not a greed thing. It's an enthusiasm thing. It's Mm -hmm. almost like I've got some hobby. I'd like to make it public. It becomes
0: more long lasting and sustainable if there's a. A revenue stream behind it.
1: Yeah, I don't think of it like that. No. It's just sort of it's something in my DNA that says, you know, for example, I've I, I started to learn the, the ukulele a few years mm-hmm. ago. And I just know sometime in my life, there will be a time when I'm on a stage and people are paying money to listen to me play the ukulele. I'm going
0: to take the other side of that trade. <laughs> you should hedge that bet because I don't see that happening.
1: No, no, I'm pretty good. I'm, okay. getting, I'm getting there. I'm getting oh, there.
0: No, it's not, it has but nothing to do with your skill set. It has to do with the demand for live ukulele performances. Oh, you'd be surprised. I would be surprised. It is
1: the instrument. All the schools are taking up ukulele because it's. it's, I'm
0: on the other side of that trade also. No, no. (laughs)
1: What what did you learn at school?
0: Uh, Trombone and piano.
1: I want to do the trombone, but they wouldn't I hated
0: the trombone. Okay. Because, at least the piano, there's a distinct key for each note. The trombone, as a 10 year old, you have to have an ear to know when you're more or less. And I had a pretty good ear, but not that good.
1: But they at schools in, in the UK at least they traditionally you, you learn the recorder you know three sure by three.
0: oh we all did that okay that's a um, given
1: but now the ukulele is replacing the recorder because really the, because it's it's easier you know you can play, okay you know, really really ten minutes I, I should have brought it, my ukulele I'm business. sorry you didn't
0: that would have been great.
1: next time next time what do we get onto
0: this so yeah, business, this business models model. right you're gonna mo- you're gonna monetize ukulele my ukulele performance so but but I've always been like that
1: and so i've going back to to the late eighties I was doing some research with with colleagues at university and we thought let's let's why don't we give some courses on teach people in the city and they just were phenomenally successful really? so we set up a business which, which and the, oh, and then we turned it into a book and it was it was suggested why don't we self publish this book so rather than just hand the book over to a publisher we actually published it and printed it etc and um, and my mother and my stepfather were in charge of sales so so my poor mother we we put in the advertising we'd say 24 hour (laughs) fax hotline (laughs) Um, so her phone would be ringing it and wasn't. how did the book sell? Oh, it, it, it incredibly well. It was it was it was just unbelievably. Considering we did hardly any advertising. This is before Amazon. It did it incredibly well um, by word of mouth. I and mean, even before the book came out, people mm-hmm. were talking about it. People, were, I, think, I think people were paying something like two hundred fifty dollars for a, a hard copy that you had to cut and paste the pictures into the text. And I don't mean cut and paste like you do, you know, with a, with a mouse. You mean I physically. mean physically, scissors and glue so they would get two piles they get the, the with without the, the images and then a separate pile with the images and they pay 250 dollars to stick the two together and
0: this was on quantitative finance quantitative finance yeah and this was way early in the rise of of the quants this was
1: this was 92 or, or thereabouts. okay so
0: uh, so there were, there were a few third fourth inning you know there were a few
1: books out there but this one was a different style of book and then from then it turned into software companies um, more publishing, etc. Sort of Were snowboard. you
0: selling this in the UK, in the US, worldwide?
1: Worldwide, well, yeah. My mother and the fax machine,
0: yeah, yeah. Seriously. Worldwide. Oh, and we it did we, very we, well. We,
1: we, we had. Um, we would give courses in, in down in Wall Street, and we would bring over from the UK boxes full of these books to get to sell to people on on the uh, on the courses. It was and you'd wild. sell them
0: all out. Sell them all out every time. Yeah. Um, that's pretty fascinating. Do you still self-publish? Because you have a number of books. To Your credit, I, this is Wiley, but what uh, the money formula. But the other quantitative finance books are you well, as
1: as you uh mentioned earlier or hinted earlier, you don't make a lot of money usually from from books mm-hmm. unless you're J.K. Rowling or, or right. someone. Um, so there the, the came a point where the it was th- there are other things that were more um profitable, more successful, and the the books became more of a hobby. Um, or a, a publicity marketing tool, really?
0: Hmm. Are financial models making people uh, overconfident and reckless in how they behave in the market? Well, I don't
1: know whether it's true or not, but I, I certainly heard that, it, that actually the um, um, accidents involving pedestrians and cyclists have gone up for exactly the same. To, uh, because, no, 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 because of pe- because people feel safe in their car and they've got all these 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 cushions and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. They're less likely to be um, injured, but people drive faster, and so they kill more pedestrians. So uh, my assumption
0: is they're texting when they're h- hitting I, uh, bicycles. Oh, no. But the or the pedestrians are playing with their phones. No,
1: it could be, could be, could be. Oh, pedestrians aren't they awful? Cy- um, oh, it no,
0: depends. No. It's subjective. When you're driving a car, they're awful, and when you're a pedestrian, look at these crazy drivers. Cyclists not though. Anything. What about cyclists in
1: Manhattan? Horrifying. Yeah. Um, you can cut all that out. We get to. try. No,
0: that's great stuff.
1: Um, the. <laughs> Yeah, the, what you should do, of course, is just stick knives in the in the in the steering wheel. You mm-hmm. get rid of all, that, of and then you drive very very safely. I suspect. Not
0: unless then, then we just get a metal <laughs> thing over your chest, and that's true. That's true. You, what you, do? you would be what fine. What can you do? What can you do? It's um, and you'd have to make sure it doesn't pop up and catch you. And yeah. but um, but
1: it's it's it's. I do again going back to regulators, regulators, don't they don't understand? I uh, there's a story I could tell, but it involves it's far too technical. But there's some, some practice that people do in banks called calibration. You don't need to know mm-hmm. what it is. But it's something that, that superficially it looks like it's a good mathematical model. But what it actually does is it, it, it hides risk. It makes it, Any model risk mm-hmm. that's there gets hidden by this act of calibration. And when I've spoken to regulators, they, they don't really understand that what these people who are calibrating are doing is hiding risk. Instead, they go around telling banks, you must calibrate. Which is like saying you must hide risk, which is really not what regulators are supposed to be doing.
0: So let's talk about your wish list when it comes to better regulations, better education, and uh, I believe in the book you call it negative bonuses. So yeah, what, what would your what would your wish list be? Well,
1: obviously more people should go to prison. Um, people should have bonuses. Uh, how taken about away. some people? Should go some to- that's the start, right? Um, the bonus is taken away, uh, but lots of people get paid stupid money. I like think CEOs of companies get paid mm-hmm. stupid money, especially in the United Just States. Just because they go, they went to the same school as some other CEO, that's pretty. Dodgy. a
0: number of people have blamed the compensation consultants for using 75% as their frame of reference oh let's compare it to the 75th percentile of other CEOs right why what, why are you assuming you're better than most of the yeah, other yeah. CEOs out yeah. there oh. so you have this horrible upward spiral
1: oh it's ter- it's terrible but um,
0: also it, not it, for them but for the rest of yeah, us yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah in in the um, in the book we talk about having something like the you know the FAA who uh, mm-hmm. regulate planes something like that for banking and complex financial products the, the, the analogy is that whenever you have a new plane it has to be tested etc cetera, etc cetera, et cetera. well if you have a new financial product it has to, it should be tested by some people um, you can't have too many of these of this specific, you can't have too much concentration risk just like you can't have too many planes landing at the same airport at the same time so there are all sorts of analogies we draw between the, um, the airline business and um, the world of banking and, of course, it's an international thing. Uh, planes take off one country, land another country. Well, how hard can it be to have an international perspective to the uh, to banking regulation?
0: And I have to ask, since you brought it up earlier, what motivated you and Professor Emmanuel Derman at, at Columbia, and formerly of Goldman Sachs, to write the Financial Modeler's Manifesto? Well,
1: he and I both had the, pretty much the, the, the same... Um, thought at the same time about... We've both been very sceptical about mathematical models. Um, there's one subtle difference, though, <laughs> and that is Emmanuel Down has not his name attached to one, which means he's kind of got a bit of skin in the game there, which right. I haven't got. So I can be slightly more, um, you know, uh, than he can, if you, if you catch my drift. Uh, anyway, yes. um, but both of us are, are very sceptical about um, uh, about the... What quants do and risk managers in in banks and hedge funds, and it was shortly after the the crisis that we we both had apparently independently thought we should write something which is and we teamed up and it was a combination of uh, Karl Marx and uh, the Hi- Hippocratic Oath that mm-hmm. we 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 got our inspiration from. First,
0: do no harm. Yes, yes. We have been speaking with Paul Wilmot. He is a f- expert in quantitative finance. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my daily column on bloombergview.com. You could follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm, I've been looking forward to having this conversation. I wish I can keep you for another couple of hours, um, but I have to get to at least two questions before I jump to my standard questions. This is, this is from the book. The notional value of derivatives in 2010 was $1.2 quadrillion. Is that correct? Yes. Are we still at any sort of risk? from a blow-up in derivatives. My my assumption is most of that 1.2 quadrillion offsets itself. What is the actual amount that... Has us at any sort of risk? It's it's hard
1: to tell because yes, th- there is notional. So it could be that you might have that could be one point two million uh, million quadrillion in swaps. So th- it mm-hmm. might just be one percent of that is at risk, um, which is hustling. still
0: not nothing. One well, percent of a quadrillion. However you cal-
1: exactly, however you uh, calculate it's it's too large because it's. That 1.2 quadrillion, if you take off a you know, a zero, zero or two, you're still left with something which is... Trillions. Um, which is... And the the world, uh, the GDP of the world is something like 50 trillion. So it, it's, it's the wrong way around. It's almost like finance is supposed to be a, a service industry, but it's almost like people are making chairs and tables and whatever just to keep the finance industry going because the numbers... The tail is wagging exactly, the dog. Exactly,
0: exactly. 1% is what, 120 billion? Is that what we're talking about off of 1.2 no, quadrillion? No, be 10. 10 12 trillion.
1: 12 trillion. Yes, yes. Yeah, so that's still that's still a quarter of the world's GDP oh. even if you take off two zeros. The, yeah.
0: the numbers numbers are just mind-boggling. Yes. Um and uh, there are all these since you were running a volatility hedge fund, one of the questions I forgot to ask you before, there are currently all these short volatility products out right. there. What what are your thoughts on these? Well, in our experience, it was definitely the case that
1: um, options tended to be overpriced. So in terms of, of, a, of a strategy, you would be selling vanilla options because they're overpriced. But the problem with selling options is when you have some extreme events, then you just blow up. Right. So you, you need to make sure that you've got plenty of tail protection in case that happens, which is something that we, we specialized in.
0: And that's why you're friends with Nassim Taleb.
1: Indeed. Oh, we, we go way back.
0: I recall having lunch with him, it was just three of us, in the middle of the financial crisis. It had to be the summer of 08 before AIG and Lehman blew up. Yeah, And we were at, I I can't even tell you the restaurant, Kalari Taverna on 44th Street. Normally you have to make reservations a week in advance. We walk in at one o'clock, it's empty. We sit right down, the three of us were just laughing away. He's. I don't have to tell you. He's incredibly entertaining, and we were talking about specifically how parts of this were so obvious coming down the pike and no it's not that people didn't see it nobody wanted to believe it yeah it, it was quite quite astonishing yeah yeah
1: no he, he's, he's a very interesting person you have to be careful when you're around him because dramatic things always happen
0: yes always always he'll he's be, a magnet
1: he'll be getting he'll be getting some text messages which will tell about like some astronomical sales of his books or some deal he's involved in or the markets are doing something crazy I was I was with him I was with him September um, The 11th. 11th, Oh, really? By Liverpool Street Station. When we got the phone call saying what happened, I was with him, uh, I think it was July the 7th, um, in London uh, a few years later when when we had uh, four bombs Mm -hmm. went off. We, We were giving a course that day and... Um, no, it's, things happen you know, around him. With, with essay, yeah. it
0: makes sense that he wrote the Black Swan because yes. he is—he is a Black Swan. Yes, the, indeed, he is. So it's,
1: it's ironic. At the same time, his book came out, the film, the Black Swan came out. So if you Google unrelated, black, right.
0: completely. Um, so let's get to some of our our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Tell me the most important thing people don't know about your background.
1: I think it's I've never had a job. Is that true? That, well, not, not really. I had a job when I was when I was seventeen for three weeks. Wait, uh, I know. you had a job? You were a professional juggler. Oh, now you see. Well, I didn't have a boss. What I mean okay. is, I, I've never really had a boss. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been running business since, since I was about nine years old, including including
0: the the, the juggling, there which I was, is on your the bio on your website. I yes. saw that and I'm like, this has to be a typo. No, Wait, no, he no. Uh, he, your your bio. Professional juggler, yeah. undercover investigator. Oh, yeah, that was good. First man in the UK to obtain an online divorce. That's correct. Yes, uh, these are these are rather unusual curriculum vitae details. It's not.
1: It's, it's because um, it, I'm very bad at, at taking risks physically. I don't take any physical risks. Okay. I don't take many financial risks, but I'm happy to take any number of reputational risks you can throw at me. So, that, for example. <laughs> Two years ago, a, a friend of mine who works for um, Channel 4, a TV uh, channel mm-hmm. in the UK, he, wanted, he said he wanted to do some uh, investigative undercover thing um, to, to find out were the political parties in the UK corrupt? Mm-hmm. You know, if you offered them money, how far could you get? Now, previously, you, you would have someone pretend to be someone. And they said they wanted to go a step further. In this age of Google, they want to have someone who was real a real business person who didn't mind making himself look stupid. Right. And so he thought of me. And so <laughs> so for six months, I had to um, have meetings with all sorts of politicians of the main parties in the UK. And offer them money. And offer them money and try and see how, what would happen, how far, far I could go, all without entrapping them. So, there is, you know, and all often... I now, would, aren't
0: I've, you at risk for committing a crime in the United States offering an elected... Official cash to do your bidding <laughs> is a felony. Well, <laughs> there are nuances here, indeed. Uh-huh. And they had teams of lawyers.
1: Uh, because, actually, because it was, a, um, it was a TV program rather than newspaper, the, the, the TV channels have a very strict rules. So, for example, we couldn't do... I, I ended up doing lots of um, hidden camera? camera stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, but it, you're not allowed to do that for TV unless you've got grounds. So we did a lot of preparatory stuff and we got some, some sort of dodgy... Things which, unfortunately, never got recorded. And then I went in with the with the equipment on the uh, the pen in the pocket, the thing in the in the in the. T- did Did you catch letter. anybody? Yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah. There was a, some somebody had to resign from the Lib Dem party, and that's oh, so it was great fun. You know, coming to the House of Lords with hidden cameras. How, how do you how do you smuggle hidden cameras into the into the government? Well, now building?
0: you have, go through a metal detector and exactly. everything else. It's oh, yeah, uh, yeah. harder to do that. Exactly, exactly. All right, so let's um, so so you've never had a boss is the thing most people don't know about you but, no. I, but I like the uh, special investigator let's talk a little about some of your mentors who were you who are the people who helped guide your career along well the I,
1: I guess the, <laughs> the obvious one my mother right. my mother she she always she always encouraged me to I, I, this explains the undercover thing encouraged me to do things even though they might have frightened me mm-hmm. now, again with the caveat nothing physical I always right.
0: got out of games at school just reputational risk
1: yeah, or, yeah anything yeah I'm going to draw the line at singing in public though okay that's, that's,
0: so no karaoke no,
1: no yeah. I'm with you, can you on early, that but one. Not, to, not the karaoke <laughs> um, so 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 I found that that's very helpful isn't it? that, that if, if something frightens me I think yeah, I've got to do it now it's frightening me so I've got to do it um that's a good philosophy to have i think so um and this is way before that that book feel the fear and do it anyway way mm-hmm. before you know, decades before that i'm unfamiliar with that you don't know another book feel, no. feel the fear and do it anyway no oh okay never heard oh, of I guess it. it's some self-help book from the the 80s i think mm-hmm. um another one there's there's a uh, my tutor and supervisor um john ockenden he i was very lucky when i was studying mathematics to fall in with a group of people mathematicians who um, who like solving real world problems physical problems for example um, using uh, fluid mechanics or, or mm-hmm. things like that because um, most most mathematicians are quite snobbish about their mathematics and there's a there's a hierarchy of amongst mathematicians which is at the very highest of the people who work on these these very profound deep, problems firm theoretical and, you know theoretical things that you know to the man in the street no idea what they're on about or what the relevance is. and really but really really tough things tough you know uh, then you, you move down the ranks and and pure mathematicians who work in, in the abstract then you've got applied mathematicians uh-huh. and these this group of people were pretty much the lowest of the low in the sense of the hierarchy In oh, that they really? use the maths to solve real problems um, what but, are they thinking? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but it was great fun. And it, gave, it means that, 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 that there are very few people, actually. I can only think of one other person in the world, who's got had such a, a breadth of mathematical experience as I have. That's why I can be very you know, skeptical about the models, because I've seen so much of the mathematical world that other people haven't seen. And of course, when I started working finance, they had to develop a, a, a whole new category, even lower
0: than the lowest of the low, for people working in <laughs> mathematical finance. So I have to ask, who is the other person who has a similar breadth of mathematical experience? Pat here? Hagen. Oh, really? Pat Hagen.
1: He's, um, uh, yeah, he's 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 worked on on a lot of volatility stuff. He's a very clever guy. Yeah, but so, he's he's had a, he's had a boss
0: many times. Ah, so he doesn't have the answer to that question. What what? Investors have influenced you who who's affected your approach to looking at markets um, which investors <sighs> I don't really follow people in that sense that's I'm a afraid. good answer
1: um, everybody else
0: says Warren Buffett, but not you know, following people is an even better answer i I'm,
1: I'm i have this 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 talent which is if 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 people say one thing, I say the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. And it comes to a point where I don't really know what my own opinion is. You're just, just you're just fading the group. I just just you know annoys people,
0: winds them up, gets I, me into I a lot like of trouble. That. But it, it sort of works. The, a uh, divergent opinion is yeah, yeah, is a course, thing. Variant is. perception absolutely works. Let's talk about everybody's favorite question. Yes. Books. What are some of your favorite books? Finance, fact, fiction, or non-fiction? Finance, non-finance. I almost never,
1: never, ever read nonfiction almost never you
0: only read fiction I pretty much only ever read see fiction. I love nonfiction I and I never I, I love fiction and I never get to it oh okay so okay. most of what I read is, is nonfiction
1: I, I find that the, most of the the nonfiction that, that I try to read is sort of obvious and I think I feel I should subscribe to one of these things where they condense a 500 page book into two pages so history um, biography some biographies but the, the not, not, Give us a few uh, times. What, what do you like? So if you, so, so if you a, prefer fiction. So prefer fiction. I'd I t- I say one of my, my all-time favorite books is um, the, the Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, Gentleman. Of okay. Of Stern. Mm-hmm. Uh, mid-18th century, I think it was. Uh, it's a totally, well, I can't even begin to describe it. It's been described as, the, as, a, as, a, as an unfilmable unfilmable. Book because it's it's so I can't even begin to describe it. You should read it. Have you okay. read it? Okay, I have not. It's it's a fantastic book. But I tend to to alternate fiction. fiction. I tend to alternate between yeah yeah the life and the opinions of Tristram Shandy. He's he's fictional. Tristram um, Trist, Trist, Tristram Shandy. Okay. Um, I tend to alternate between what you might call a classic book and then something just to just to recover from the classic book. Mm-hmm. And I I'm very I'm now very impatient with books. Up until the age of thirty, I would say that if I started a book, I had to finish it. And I, you
0: know, you get t- you get over that pretty quickly. I, got, it, was a,
1: it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me, other than birth of my children, right. was to realize that I could just stop reading a book.
0: Put it away. Oh, this is exactly. disappointing. So
1: I, yep. so I, if a book's more than say 400 pages, I probably won't even buy it. Uh huh. Um, if it, if it gets rave reviews on Amazon, um, if it's kind of cl- classical, then I might avoid it because I know it's, you know, critics mm-hmm. are a bit funny. Uh, and I'll alternate between maybe some classic and something easy. What One thing I've discovered r- relatively recently is, is Lee Child. Now, you know Lee Child. Sure. Uh, Jack Reacher or... Exactly. but the fascinating yeah. thing about My wife him, plows through those books. the fascinating thing is... Of all the kind of, it's not exactly Pulp Fiction, but it's heading that direction. He's the only one that middle class people will admit to reading.
0: Oh, really? Yes, yes. The funny it's, it's thing is, if you've seen the movie, it's a short white guy. But in the, in the in the book, it's a tall black guy. I don't know why they didn't cast that. He's not black. Um, he's tall. He, no, he's not. I don't think he's
1: black. I thought he was. I don't know. How many have you read? Um, oh, one.
0: Okay, my wife's read, <laughs> my wife's read ten. Okay, well um, let's, we should call her. I, I have to. I have to ask. I could be wrong, but
1: we can definitely agree that Tom Cruise is a, is a short white guy. Uh,
0: for sure, to say the least. Yeah. Um, let's. Uh, one other book. Give me one other thing you've read recently. Something I've
1: read. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And enjoyed. Oh, okay, okay.
0: No. Or, gonna, or you don't yeah. have to have
1: enjoyed. I mentioned earlier J.K. Rowling. Uh huh. She wrote this. So she, under a pseudonym, the book. Which one? I don't remember, but she's done this one called "The Cuckoo's Calling," something uh-huh. like that. It's awful. I mean, really. Oh, I mean, really. really. I love the Harry Potter books. Uh huh. Love them, but this is dire. It's like Agatha, she's trying to be Agatha Christie, but it's like three times as long as it should be, and you just don't. I, I, I finished that just because I, you know, what did who who done it? But by the time you get to the end, you realise. Anybody could have done it, and she just picked randomly. So you just—it was rubbish. Did uh, I, that, avoid. Don't read focus it. Could, no, please.
0: All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna cross that off my list. Um, so since you first started following quantitative finance, uh, what's changed in the in, in the industry? What do you think is the is it te- the rise of technology? Is it the wholesale adoption? What what is the big shift in quantitative finance? The, well,
1: technology—you have to mention technology, indeed. Um, But that's happened everywhere, not just in in quantitative finance, but also the number of people, Mm -hmm. the the sheer quantities of people. It's taken over finance, pretty much. It has. And I'm not sure that the the people are necessarily as good as they used to be. Mm -hmm. That's my sense.
0: Diluting the talent pool just through sheer numbers or the wrong people being attracted to
1: it? It's a bit of both. And also education. I I have my own educational program, the the Certificate in Quantitative Finance. But most people go through master's in finance at programs of financial engineering at university. And they're taught by, by people who don't necessarily understand how the, the, uh, how the markets work. Or you, you yourself have mentioned, between us, we've mentioned various, the psychological side of things. Mm-hmm. And you really have to understand human nature really almost before you start doing the mathematics mm-hmm. um, and that's something people completely miss, they, they think the models explain everything and most of these programs people go on that they're, they're taught the mathematics but they're not taught when things break down, why things break down
0: etc so education is pretty bad I think So tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience The time I failed
1: um, the there's there's, there's one where, this may be a bit cheesy it may not be strictly true but it sounds quite good there was a time <laughs> <laughs> there was a I must have been about 13 and there was a there was a phase of we were all playing all of card games and gambling you know just for pennies really pennies because this is mm-hmm. a, early 1970s and I remember one time um, making a bet with Billy Jones
0: Billy Jones what, Billy BM. Jones
1: he's Billy Jones in, in my class Billy Jones oh okay. <laughs> Another thirteen-year-old. Gotcha. Um, and it was—I think—I think it was about seven p. Right. It, it was all the money I had in my pocket, seven p. And I lost this bet, and it was a stupid, stupid, stupid bet. But but I made the bet and I lost it. And clearly, it's—you it, know—you can see me crying now as we speak. It's—it's it's had an impact on my on my entire life, and
0: I think it's—it's it's made me very risk averse. Uh, well, we're um, all we're all theoretically somewhat risk averse, but you suffered a little. Um, it's actually helpful the worst thing in the world that can happen to someone oh, is definitely. they walk into a casino yeah, yeah. and win money yes exactly. or their first time they start trading they make money yeah you're much better off experiencing oh, yeah. loss yeah, yeah. up front no, I've, I've got Billy Jones to thank that's right that's yeah. right let's let's jump to my our last and two favorite questions. Uh, these are the ones that seem to have the most amount of resonance with people. So if a recent college graduate or a millennial would come up to you and say, I'm interested in a career in quantitative finance. What sort of advice would you give them?
1: Aye, yeah 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 yeah. Oh, okay. What would I? Hmm. It's it's. What do people? What do people usually say for this sort of thing? Then it
0: it ranges from it ranges from uh, I'm the wrong person to ask to let me tell you these three things and never forget them and everything <laughs> in between.
1: Okay, well I'm gonna give, I'm gonna give you another point on the spectrum, mm-hmm. for that, which is. Have children early. Okay. Postpone the career thing. Really. As much as you can. Do you have children? No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so I'm I'm a late bloomer. I would say have children early because most people talk about oh they they want to have this to get their career kick started mm-hmm. and when they talk about their career they're always talking about um, I don't know being a lawyer or a, or a quant or something it's not like they're curing right rate. it can wait
0: it can wait you, being a lawyer
1: can wait so it really it really upsets me when i see people who who just good around children but they've anyway so that would be it just wait a while and have children first
0: and our last and final question what do you know about quantitative finance today that you wish you knew 25 years ago one thing that, that i realized sort of
1: halfway through that Period would be that the there's a, a lot of people have names attached to models, but usually those models. I don't know if I offend any friends of mine here, but usually those models offend away. Offend away. How many people listen to this? No, no just it's just me. the two of us. The they uh, come up with a mo- model, and usually it's it's a, a minor tweak to to something to some other model and it's not necessarily a great model in any way shape or form fact, it's a
0: bad model tweaked bad to be something else <laughs> to
1: be even worse <laughs> okay. yes. not so, even to be better to no, be worse no. yeah. usually it's tweaked to make it easier to use and I mean, if it's only, you, you did not know that 25 years ago i didn't realize that that was sort of important um and i'm i wonder if i knew that 25 years ago would i have, have taken a different route i i, I really hope i wouldn't, because my route has always been to do whatever I think is fun, mm-hmm. and that's why if you look at my list of papers, there are all sorts of crazy things in that, in my list of papers. Um So, though this isn't really something I, I wish I knew. I would take advantage of. I would like to think I knew it and I decided not to do. It. It's that. It's that. It's that. It's, it's Keynes again. I think it's Keynes. Uh-huh. Um, it is. He says, it is better to fail conventionally. Yes than to su- succeed unconventionally. And I very much succeeded unconventionally. Unconventionally. So I don't know where I'm going with any of this.
0: <laughs> but it, but it's fascinating nonetheless. <laughs> we have been speaking with Paul Wilmot, quantitative finance expert and author, his, his latest book. Paul, what's the name of your new book? It's The Money Formula
1: dodgy finance, pseudoscience, and how mathematicians took over the markets.
0: If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the other 150 or so such conversations we've had. You can find us on Apple iTunes, Overcast, uh, wherever fine podcasts are sold. I would be remiss if I did not thank uh, the crack staff that helps put this podcast together each week. Uh, Medina Parwana is my technical producer and audio engineer. Taylor Riggs is our booker slash producer. Mike Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.